So I would invite you to grab a Bible if you don't didn't have one with you and open up that Bible to Second Peter. And if you want to find Second Peter, go back to Revelation, the last book in the Bible, and go the other way, and you'll find Peter very close to the end of the book. So we've been traveling through these first uh, verses for quite some time, and today, uh, Lord willing, we're going to get a little further and unpack some more of these treasures. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our opportunity to have it in our hands, to read it in our minds and our hearts. And Lord, pray that your word would have its desired effect to open our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts to your grace, your love, to a relationship with you that is meaningful and powerful and redemptive. And we just thank you for your grace. Thank you for the demonstration of your grace in your son, Jesus. Thank you for life that you give us in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So I'm going to start with verse 3, and you can follow along with me. And we're going to cover this section today, try to uh, glean some of the things. So verse 3, his divine power, his, there is God, his divine given us everything we need for life and godliness through our faith in him, through our knowledge of him, who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. And there's seven things that Peter spells out for us to add to our faith. We're to add to our faith virtue, the word goodness in the NIV, the word virtue in other translations, moral excellence in other translations, that the idea we've covered that. But to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. And so we, um, Bruce has a stick man that Mimi made for us to just help us because I was looking for ways for my brain to uh, remember these virtues, remember these characteristics, and one of the reasons it just dawned on me again, okay, Bruce, if you could put those up there, that was just uh, because you think about a human being and a human being comes out of the womb and there's not a lot there except uh, crying, whining, and changing diapers, right? But that human being doesn't stay that way. They grow. And so this is basically a fully developed human being would have these characteristics, and so if you think about it in the big picture, the, this list of characteristics are God's gift to you and I 
so that we can have healthy, functional, lifelong lasting relationships. And you start to look at these as tools that you would put in your tool chest, things that you would use for the mechanics of relationships. First and foremost, your relationship with God and then your relationship with one another. are missing in your toolbox and you begin to understand what these things mean and what they entail and the depth and the breadth of them, you will go, wow, no wonder Peter said, for this reason, make every effort to add to my faith these things because these are the things that he deemed at the end of his life that were critically important. And I stopped reading there at verse 7. Didn't read verse 8, verse 9. But he goes on and he says, For if you do these things, a little further down, verse 10, he says, If you do these things, in verse 12, I will always remind you of these things. And then verse 15, you will always be able to remember these things. So when you're looking at and you're thinking about if you were going to impart to another person, another human being, even your children, you say, you know what? There's lots of things that you could add to your life. There's lots of things you could give effort toward. There's lots of things you could focus on. But these are some critical things. And they're interlocked together. And they add on one another. And they feed on one another. They build one another. They grow one another. So a fully developed human being would look like this. They would be standing on faith. Faith is the foundation of our relationship with God. And so faith would be the beginning step. We're saved by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone. But faith that is a living, breathing faith never remains alone. So Peter says, add to your faith. And then the first one he says is add to your faith goodness. So we can just kind of whip through these a little bit, Bruce. Goodness. The next one was knowledge. The next one was what, anybody? Self-control. Perseverance. Godliness. Brotherly kindness. And love. And so when you start to think about, maybe, maybe let's just say you're 15 years old here today, or you're 25 years old today, and you're saying, I'm in a stage in my life where I need to develop these things. I'm looking for what, what really matters in life. What is going to make me a person of, let's just use the word substance, okay, for now. A person of character, a person of integrity, a person who would be a person that was fully formed and fully developed. You would have these things in continuing increasing measure. So I want to start before I get right into there. I want to start with verse eight. And I want to say you need you and I need to be asking ourselves why we would need these things. And the more we understand that we need them and why we would need them, then there begin then the effort to make to add them to our lives would become more important. So he says after giving the list, he says, for if you have these qualities in increasing measure. So that should be telling you something about each of these qualities. You, you just They just aren't downloaded to you on a day because you had a good day that day. And they're 
increasing measure. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. Ineffective and unproductive. Hopefully none of you here, that's your goal in life, to be ineffective and unproductive. Hopefully you don't want to be ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of Christ, because that's what he says, in your knowledge of Christ. So you can have faith, but if you don't add these things to your life in increasing measure, you're going to wind up in a place where you're going to be ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of Christ. And that's pretty important. And then he says, but if anybody does not have them, if anybody does not have them, and he's talking about not just having a little bit, but having them in increasing measure, you're nearsighted and blind. And nearsighted and blind is not only can you not help other people find their way, you're nearsighted and blind. You can't even find your own way. Nearsighted and blind, it could be that you can't see your hand in front of your face. You have no idea where you're going. You have no idea what's happening next week or the next week. So you can think, well, Wow, nearsighted and blind is not a healthy place to be, especially if I'm going to be building healthy relationships. And I'm nearsighted and blind. I should probably be adding these characteristics to my life so then I can be productive and successful. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. We need to add to our faith knowledge. And we covered this word knowledge before. It was already used in verse 2, verse 3. And he's talking about through our knowledge of faith, through our knowledge of God, that's how we add to our faith. And add to your faith, faith is certainly the foundation. It's the first step. But knowledge, and they're talking about knowledge here, they're talking not about factual knowledge that you put in your head, but it has no experiential power, no relational power. He's talking about relationships. And he's talking about relational knowledge. And there's at least five ways in which you add to your faith knowledge. And this is knowledge about God, knowledge how relationships function, knowledge about people, knowledge about yourself, but it's based in spiritual knowledge of a relationship with God. There's at least five ways. Number one, simply his word. You would be spending time in his word. And his word teaches him, teaches us about his nature and about what he has accomplished. And you would need to ask yourself, and I need to ask myself, what does it mean to know someone? And we could probably think, I could shoot out a name. I was thinking about a name this morning. I might show it out that every person in this room could possibly know the name of this person. Oprah Winfrey. Okay. Has everybody heard that name at least one time in their life? Anybody here know Oprah? You probably know a lot of things about her, maybe even read a book about her. But this type of knowledge that you're to add to your faith, this type of knowledge is a relational intimacy of knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge that you would know Oprah that, because you spent time with her. And so the way that we know God is to spend time with him, first and foremost, through his word that we would spend time getting to know him by reading his love letter to us. And then by actually reading what it says and then attempting, because this is a practice, this is a learned trying to trust him. And I say trying because that too, it's not just downloaded. 
that all of a sudden you just trust a, a person. You have to enter into relationship and you're entering into relationship because you're an untrustworthy person and you don't know if you can be trusted. Can other people be trusted? Can God be trusted? So you just began to step out and say, well, I'm going to trust God today. And you're going to learn how weak your trust is and you're going to learn how great he is, but that's going to take time. So through, through his word, through trusting him in tiny little steps of learning what it means to trust him because you're studying his word, trust, obedience, prayer, and fellowship. Prayer is listening to God and talking to God. Fellowship is basically just enjoying time with other Christians, talking about our relationship and our walk with God. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on knowledge this morning because we've covered it several times. But I do want to make sure that you understand that knowledge here is knowledge of God. It's not knowledge of science and medicine. It can include those things for sure, because God gave lots of wisdom and knowledge to people all around the world. But you could have knowledge of medicine, knowledge of science, knowledge of biology, and not know God, so that a baby in the womb, one day before it's born, is not a baby? Is that knowledge? Or is that scientific information that you can twist according to your whims and fancies? But knowledge of God, through knowledge of God, we know that a baby in the womb is a baby, a human being. And whether that baby is in the formation process, that baby left alone will grow and become a human being in the fullness of what a human being is. So knowledge, it's knowledge of God, spiritual wisdom and insight of his person and his work. And so I'm going to turn to Philippians and I'm going to read one verse. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but I just want to show you that uh, Peter wasn't alone in thinking that knowledge was important, knowledge of God. So in Philippians chapter 3, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So Ephesians chapter 3 says this. This is Paul talking this time. And he says, Whatever was to my prophet, and I'll consider loss, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. And so this knowing that Peter and Paul are talking about is a knowledge with Jesus that is personal, experiential, by having and being in a relationship with God through faith. And then growing in that relationship on a continual basis in your life. As life goes on. A life of trust, a life of obedience. So we're to add that to our faith. So add this knowledge. And then to knowledge, self-control. Now there's a, there was quite a few definitions of self-control. It was interesting that the, the characteristics that are listed here 
the characteristics that God makes available to us through participation in his nature are possible only as men and women have a right relationship with God. And think about this illustration just for a second. If these are characteristics that make a person whole, healthy, godly, faithful, um, in a right relationship with God, these, these seven characteristics, you would think that people in the military and people that are Olympic athletes would be the most godly people on the face of the earth because they have so much self-control. I remember when I was a little kid watching the preparation for the Olympics and they would do some, some two to three minute, um, what were they called? Two to three minute clips on one particular athlete, uh, whether it was a male or a female athlete, and they were in the top category hoping to win the gold medal. So they would do this little three minute clip and go show some of their training show some of the sacrifice and show some of the things that they went through to become the athlete they were today at that day. And I'm just thinking, wow, did they display self-control? Did they display perseverance? But this type of self-control and this type of perseverance that are in this list, men cannot achieve on their own. This is a, this is a gift from God. It's listed in the fruit of the spirit and it's specifically for to battle sin and temptation in our life. So this self-control isn't so that I can be disciplined athlete. This self-control is that I can be disciplined in my walk with God and my relationship with people. And basically the word there does mean mastery of one's emotions rather than being mastered by them. One of the teachings of the false, one of the false teachers of Peter's day was that you could have knowledge, and if you had enough knowledge, you didn't have to exercise any self-control. If you had enough power, if you had enough fame, you had no responsibility to have self-control. Sounds a little bit like some of our famous people today and our powerful people today. They don't have to exercise any self-control because they assume knowledge and power give them the ability to be free to express themselves in any way they want without any responsibility. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is the gift of self-control that God gives you and I to manage our darkest parts of our being. The part that is touched by sin. The part that is marred by sin. The part that is... Uh, gross and immoral and the sin in us that dwells there that needs to be mastered by God's spirit and is overcome by the spirit of God, not by the exercise of our self-control. So we're not talking about self-dependence. We're talking about self-control because back in Peter's day, there was a group of philosophers called the Stoics and they had, they gramped onto virtues too. But in there, they developed a whole philosophy that's based on humanism, human effort, and I can achieve all these things. We're not talking about that in the scriptures here. We're talking about God giving these as gifts through his Holy Spirit and his presence living in us. That these are Christian characteristics in the life of the believer for the life of the believer 
for relationship with God and relationship with other people. And so the self-control is talked about in the fact that, um, let me give you a perfect illustration in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is uh, Paul who loved the athletic games and used them often as illustrations in teaching scripture. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, he asks the question, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets a prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. So he's talking about exercising self-control. He's talking about discipline. He's talking about perseverance. And he's talking about the fact that everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to win a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Then he's talking about himself. I do not run like a man beating the air, but I, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body. Basically, I take control and I make it my slave that I may, after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So this gift that God gives, this characteristic that you're to add to your faith, self-mastery, power to rule, dominion within, the idea of holding oneself in check. We would say to somebody, you know, maybe we'd say to a young person, get a grip. And we're talking about get a grip on yourself. And the, the whole idea that if you don't get a grip, you're not going to be pay attention long enough to learn anything. So self-control is a sense where you could have self-mastery. And it's a gift. And God is saying that this is possible. Holding passions and desires in check. Not just in one particular area. Not just in the area of our raging hormones. But in every area of our life that we can ask God. Say, Lord, I need self-control in this area. Maybe it's a wandering eye. Maybe it's a wandering mind. Maybe it's a hand that is trying to take things that aren't yours. Maybe it's feet that lead you to places you shouldn't be. You could say, God, I need self-control in this area. And God will help you. God will walk with you. And so, um, interesting Paul goes on, and I'm just going to quickly go through Galatians chapter 5, just to give you another picture of this idea, the gift of self-control that's given to us that Peter's telling us to add to our faith. So if you would go to Galatians 5.16, you would come to verse and it says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the cravings of the flesh. Okay? For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the Spirit to the sinful nature so that you're at war and they're at war. So within you and within me, this is why I'm appreciating self-control that God gives us in a whole new way. Cause I'm very more than ever in my life. There's a civil war going on in here. There's a small C named Chris and there's a large C named Christ. And Chris is not smart enough not humble enough, not godly enough to recognize that Christ's rule is better than Chris's rule. And so as I, as when I walk through different situations and circumstances in life, I bump up against things and Chris rises up. Hey, get down there. I want Christ to lead this life. I want Christ to be in the chair. 
And so look at what it says there in Galatians 5, 16 and 17. Verse 17, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit was contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. He might say, well, I get my way. <laughs> Believe me, getting your own way won't make you happy. Getting your own way won't bring godliness to your life. Getting your own way is about self-centeredness. It's not about building right kind of relationships of love. But if you're led by the Spirit, it says in verse 18, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. The list could go on and on, he's saying. That's what human beings are capable of, and that's what human beings carry out on a regular basis if they're not self-controlled by the Holy Spirit of the living God. All those things are possible to us and more if we're not walking the way we could be and should be walking with God. So self-control is a good thing to add to your faith because it helps rein in those passions that need to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. If you want to live functionally, okay, remember one of the definitions of virtue, adding goodness to your life, was to live a functional human life. If you want to live functionally, you have to have values. You can't live a functional, meaningful, purposeful, powerful, successful life and successful by biblical standards without values. All of these qualities you could add to your life if you could add only seven, it would be enough because they're so rich, they're so comprehensive, they're so interactive. And I would say these, these virtues are more important to teach your children than math or music. Because without these virtues, you might use your math like many people do to add up that your neighbor has more than you do. And you're going to live in envy and greed. You might use your math to mess with some numbers that would allow you to cheat. You might use your music rather to worship God and to honor his name. You might use your worship, your, your, your music ability to manipulate people. And I would like to see our kids learn math and music. But I'd like to see them grounded in fundamental character nature of God. Of these things that we're talking about here that Peter's laid out. The next thing he says, add to your self-control perseverance. So the idea, think about, you have restraint. But you don't need restraint for a half hour. You don't need restraint for a day. So perseverance comes along with self-control. And perseverance is this idea of the long haul. The long haul. James says that perseverance is something that de not, doesn't develop automatically. We must work at it, and it must work in us. Consider it all joy 
my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your lives, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work. So perseverance, basically the definition of perseverance, the ability to endure during a trial. Words like steadfastness, words like um, endurance, the ability to hang in there when all the circumstances are difficult and you and I want to bail out. Perseverance comes in. Self-control has mostly to do with handling um, the pleasures in life. Perseverance has mostly to do with handling the circumstances and the tensions in life. The Greek word describes the attitude which remains strong during trials in a God-honoring way. So as to learn the lessons that are acquired by perseverance. It may be two, three, four, five, six days, weeks, or months that are required for you to learn lessons. And if we don't have perseverance, staying power, the lesson we would learn on the seventh day is missed out. The lesson we learn on the seventh week, we'd miss out. So God gives us the gift of perseverance. Perseverance isn't just the fact that you have a gift called perseverance so you can put up with each other. And you can be thankful for that. I mean, my wife and I are very thankful for perseverance in our relationship so we can put up with each other. But the Greek expression of the word there carries with it. You're not just putting up with. You're triumphing over. It's a sense of staying power that increases during the battle. I think about faith, who we've been praying for for years now. And if you want to pray a healthy prayer for someone, God, give them perseverance. Give them staying power in the midst of the stress and the strain of this relationship, whatever they're going through at this time. Give them staying power. The, the story was told of a person that was enduring some very serious suffering. And somebody jokingly and maybe half-heartedly said to them, well, suffering, suffering sure colors life, doesn't it? And they said, yes, indeed it does. But I choose the colors. I choose the colors. So suffering can produce bitterness, but it all can, can also can, can produce betterness. And that's where God would have us. He would have us in that better category, the developing care category. The, the Greek word describes the person which can not only just accept a problem, but to be in the midst of that problem and through faith in God, they grow through the problem. They grow stronger. The Christian is exactly like an athlete whose spiritual muscles become stronger through discipline of difficulties because we're never left to face these difficulties on our own. We face them with trust in God, the God who says, add these things that are basically the characteristics of his nature. This is what we'd be praying for for each other on a regular basis if we understood what a gift it is. Every time you hear about somebody in, this, in a tough situation, 
rather than immediately saying, God, get them out of the situation. Say, God, give them perseverance they need so that they can learn everything possible to learn in this situation they're in. So they can milk it to the full. Because when they come out of this situation, just think of the riches in a sense of character and value and comfort and wisdom they'll have to offer other people who are starting out in that situation who are entering into a difficult situation. I'm so grateful when I get into a situation, I call people. Hey, how did you handle this? What did you do in this situation? Because I know they've been through it, and I recognize perseverance in their life. Not just self-control that lasted a day, but self-control that was there and developed and, and strengthened with the perseverance. So you can pray for people. Amy Carmichael writes in one of her books, her book called Candles in the Dark. She wrote, the best training is to learn to accept everything as it comes. As if it comes from him who loves our souls and is the one who's developing us. These tests are always unexpected. Things that are not great, but things that are little, and they're common little rubs, she says, silly little nothings that can knock a strong person off their feet. And so we ask God for perseverance. In First Thessalonians, Paul wrote to Thessalonians in chapter 1 of First Thessalonians, and he said this to them. He said, we always thank God for all of you Mention you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Endurance, perseverance. Perseverance connected to hope. Christian is hope is hope that's outside the walls of this world. Hope that cannot be squelched. Hope that cannot be beat down. Perseverance and hope are intimately connected for the Christian. They inspire one another and they build us up. Many years ago, near the end of his life, Winston Churchill was asked to give a speech at his alma mater. How do you say that? Alma mater. You got it, right? Where he graduated. And so he went back. And everybody, I mean, the place was thick with anticipation, right? This is after the war. And after he saved Britain from certain destruction. So everybody's waiting. What is Winston Churchill going to say? So he saunders up to the podium. All five foot ten inches of him. And he gets his glasses ready. And he leans over the pulpit. And he says, gentlemen, never give up. Never give up. Never give up. And then he went and sat down. And you realize, if you know anything about Winston Churchill and the war and saving England, it was about never giving up. It was about hanging in there. We have, by grace, 
a God who wants to give us these gifts. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Self-control, that mastery over passions and desires, added with perseverance, gives us the opportunity to continue to build on a life one step at a time, just like a small little acorn produces a giant tree. So perseverance, this ability to endure during a trial, you can think about people in your life and you can look back on your own life and you say, wow, I should have asked God for help during that time. I should have asked God for some perseverance there. I'm talking about myself now. I can look back in times where I could have learned more about perseverance, more about God's character, more about trusting in him. But you know what I did? I did some whining and I did some complaining and I did some bailing out where if I could have trusted God and should have trusted God in that situation, he would have developed in me more of his character. So perseverance. In Romans chapter 5, it says this. Romans chapter 5, verse 5, it says, Hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. And before that, it talked about perseverance, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts. The best, one of the best things God does for us is to allow us to be in places where we need to ask his help. To bring us into a place. You know, it's kind of like a father teaching their kid out in the woods how to follow a trail. And the kid gets off and they need their father to put them back on the trail. But after maybe two or three times of getting off the trail, the child learns to pay a little better attention to the trail that the father has marked out. That's our privilege. That's our responsibility. We're doing good on time. So getting back, scampering back to second Peter. Add to self-control, perseverance and to perseverance, godliness. Some of these words were pretty difficult in our English language to translate from the Greek, and godliness is one of them. And the simplest way to look at godliness is just to think about God-likeness. It's almost in the word godliness, God-likeness. And the idea is that in each area of our life, we have a practical awareness of God's person and God's presence in every area of our life. That it isn't just about on a Sunday morning as you sit in a building that we call a church because we're the church and the church is wherever we are, wherever we go, wherever two or three are gathered in his name. And so godliness that you add to your faith is the practical awareness, having a proper attitude and actions before God in every area of your life. 
So if you would practice godliness on a Saturday evening at midnight, maybe you wouldn't be in a place where you shouldn't be. If you would practice godliness on a Friday evening at 1130, practice godliness just means that you're God aware in every area of your life, that the whole of the Christian life, godliness expects knowledge of God, worship of God, love of God, dependence on God, And godliness is impossible without a relationship with God because it's based on a relationship with God, living in a reverential awe of God. That's godliness. So you're adding that to your life. And then to godliness, we add brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness is just simply love between members of a family. Okay? Brotherly kindness. But in the Christian family, your brothers and sisters with people who are not related to you by blood because you're in the family of God. So brotherly kindness means that you're acting in the highest good of another person independent of your feelings. So brotherly kindness and love near the end here, they overlap. Brotherly kindness could include feelings, and it does, but be very careful that your treatment of people is not dependent on your feelings for them. Think about that. Your treatment of people, if it's dependent on your feelings for them, what are they going to get from you? Not much. But if your brotherly kindness is an expression of, of love for them that comes from God, that is a gift of God, because feelings come and go like the wind. And your treatment of people, in, especially in close relationships, family relationships, marriages, it can't be based on feelings. So this gift, brotherly kindness, that we're to add to our faith is our treatment one another based on the objective fact that humans were created in the image of God. And it's based on the fact that that alone makes them worthy of being loved. So whether I feel like it or not, I can love my neighbor because brotherly kindness is commanded by God and given by God. Feelings are terrible leaders. Feelings are terrible leaders, especially in relationships. Feelings are what children and those who don't mature base most of their actions on. And it's not easy to recognize because the whole culture values feelings over virtue, feelings over character, personal felt rights over objective reality. The last one, love. And so you could spend you could spend weeks on each of these characteristics, and especially if you said, you know what, I'm going to take the month of March, and I'm going to say, I'm going to I'm going to try to understand and practice brotherly kindness, and I'm going to take the March of month of April, and I'm going to track practice love. So this word here, agape, Greek where he says, add to brotherly kindness, love, brotherly kindness, love, this type of love is unconditional, sacrificial love. And biblically, 
it refers to the love that God gives and the love that God is. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, and in verse 16, Scripture says, God is love. That's what we're talking about. Unrestricted, unrestrained, unconditional. May or, not, may or may not involve emotions, but always involves actions. So this is a different kind of love. Immediately, we need to dispel from our minds any idea of the emotions you might feel when you enjoy the company of another person, when they're kind toward you as a basis of love. That's not the basis of love. Somebody acting kind toward you will um, bring up a response of feelings, but that doesn't necessitate agape love. Biblical agape love is grounded in the person of God. As it, and it's expressed by choice to act in a way that is in the highest good of another person. The love which is described as the willingness to serve another through consistent choice and actions for their highest good, to promote their highest well-being. It's not based on feelings at all. There can be some feelings, but it's not based on feelings. It's based on building relationships. Agape chooses to act out of self-sacrificing ways to serve the recipient. Agape love is the polar opposite of the world's criteria for love, such as attractiveness, emotions, feelings, lust, infatuation. The world expects and even demands that feelings must always accompany love. That one would always have positive feelings and emotions when love is really at work. That's not agape love. For agape love is not at all dependent on feelings, but grounded in choice. People don't fall in and out of agape love. Emotional and physical attraction are realities that we humans experience. But to mistake those impulses which come and go like the wind for agape love is more than just immature ignorance. It's a setup for disaster. John 3.16, 1 John 3.16 says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay our lives down for one another. When I was growing up, I had absolutely no understanding. Life, not the love of choice. I look back at my junior and senior high school days, and I clearly can see from here how confused I was that love was not based on feelings, but based on choices. And so in my idea of love, I was falling in and out of life, love several times a day. I went to a high school where I graduated with 1,000 kids, right? So I, I fell in and out of life all day long because I thought love had to do with feelings. I had to, love had to do with what happened in my stomach. Wow. And when you hear a young man say, says to his girlfriend, I've fallen out of love with you, she could say, and this would be very good if she said, 
Well, that's just great. Now we can get on to some real love. You've fallen out of love with me. We're done with it. So are you saying that you're done with infatuation? Now we're going to get on to real love acts of kindness for the highest good of another person. So the love that's uh, the love that never fails. Is that what the, is that what you're saying now? You fell out of love with me and now you're grown up. And so you're going to show me the love that never fails. Wouldn't that be great? Can you imagine all the young women across the land when the guy says, you know, I think I've fallen out of love with you. And she said, that's just great. Now we can grow up. And now we can get on with what real love's about. Making acts of the will and sacrificial choice for the highest good of one another. What kind of love are we offering our neighbors and our friends? What kind of love should we be offering our neighbors and our friends? And this is certainly in one area of my life. And I have many areas of my life that God has show, had to show me again and again and again and again and again that loving other people has nothing to do with feelings. It has to do with acts of sacrificial choice for their highest good. So that frees me in a way because if I bump into a person, I can say, God, help me to love them with your love. Because I'm not feeling anything. And he would say, that's right, Chris. Because love is an act of the will, strengthened by choice, where you're going to serve this person. And I will give you that. I remember um, reading 1 John. So you can go read this later on. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 21. Verse 7 to 21 is 15 verses, 22 times in those 15 verses, it uses the word love. And you go back and you reread it and you reread it. And it says, if somebody says, I love God, but they hate their brother, the love of God is not in them. And I thought, what? So I had to continue to learn what this means. I couldn't see it. I couldn't understand it. And I certainly was not practicing anything close to sacrificial love that scripture says that I should be adding to my faith. And those verses would keep going through my head. And I would keep saying, God, I don't know this kind of love. I'm not sure I could practice this kind of love. Father, show me this kind of love so that I can practice this kind of love. And then I realized even in my relationship with God, my relationship with God for years was like a roller coaster. Do you know why? Because there was days when I woke up in the morning and I didn't feel good. And I connected that immediately with my relationships around me. Well, if I don't feel good, God must not love me today. Because love has to do with feelings. And man, the freedom and the, the joy and the power and the intimacy and the authenticity that I'm experiencing now in my relationship with God and with others, as I learn that my feelings come and go like the wind, but God remains. Love never fails. And I go back and say, wait, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not rude. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not jealous. Wow. These are actions and attitudes and characteristics you won't read feelings in there anywhere. And I realized, you know what? Over the years, my wife and I have 
Well, as long as you understand what I said earlier, my wife and I have fallen in and out of love many times in 35 years, but we've never been out of love. Right? Did I say that rightly? She's not here to correct me, but we can talk about it later. But the idea is the feelings come and go like the wind. So if you're in a situation right now, maybe you're in your relationship in your marriage and you're still learning that love is not a feeling, that love is an action. And you're like going, wow, we're in this dark place and all the feelings are gone. Well, good. It's time to grow up. It's time to really ask God for love that is based on acts of sacrifice. This is how we know what love is. That God sent his son, Jesus, who died on the cross. So there's four kinds of love. There's agape, which is God's love. There's storge, which is family love. There's phileo, which is brotherly love. And there's eros, which is romantic, erotic love. And unless you have God's love in your relationship, <clears throat> you're not building the sustaining type of love that needs to be there to help you through the long haul. And this is the kind of love God commands because it's based on choice. And that helped me too. So agape love is based on choice. And so God can command that. God can command you to love your neighbor because the kind of love that is, is a choice. Agape love is not human affection, but it is God's love. God who lives in us and loves through us as we cooperate with his Holy Spirit. We need to stop there. But you can see that these characteristics added to your life. And you think about the development of this person who's growing in these characteristics in a continuous manner. That person's going to be growing toward Christ-like character and experiencing the fullness of relationships that God has to offer us. So you know what? If you're in relationships right now with people, which you certainly are, and you're going, well, my relationships are rather weak. My relationships are kind of anemic. They're a little sickly. They're not where they should be, and I'm not where I should be. Well, listen, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith so that you could be in a place where you say, you know what? My relationships are stronger than they were last month. My relationships are growing stronger as we continually to learn to add what God adds to relationships, these types of characteristics. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for the opportunity we have, the privilege, the responsibility we have, the duty, the obligation, the wonder we have to add to our faith, to be engaged in this relationship with you in an ongoing basis, to seek your face, to hunger and thirst for you, to sift through all the things, the values that come our way, the things that try to distract us so that we can run this race with perseverance and fix our eyes on you. Pray that you would help us, God, to see the value of these treasures, these gifts that we have. And we would take up our responsibility to add them to our lives, the privilege to add them to our lives on a regular basis. We thank you in Jesus' precious name.
Amen. Okay.